Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey, folks. One of my favorite parts of our project is our growing blog. When we first started the Bad Roman Project, we knew we would need a website and a blog for folks to, to read, but putting that blog together seemed like a tough task to accomplish, but thankfully we have some awesome people working on the project and we're happy to help get this started. As we went along, we needed more content and we came up with the idea to invite listeners to contribute and also come on the show. The reaction to this request has been incredible and I'm so thankful to everyone who's helped make our blog one of the best ones out there. Today, I'm joined by N. Manelli. He wrote a fantastic article titled, Jesus is the Epitome of Everything a Bad Roman Wants to Be, for thebadroman.com. He graciously accepted my request to come on the show, and I'm so thankful that you're here, sir. When we were doing this, uh, our email back and forth, you seemed a little hesitant to to do it because you didn't think you were very interesting. And I found your your story in the about the author part very interesting to me, and it's something I wanted to get into in, in, in this recording. But and I'm, I'm I'm very thankful you're here. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. We had a good service this morning. The church has a real traditional type thing they've been doing for decades called Baptist Men's Day, and so we had a good service today that was very enjoyable. And so it's kind of a nice transition to finish that and then come and talk to you today. So I'm really thankful to be here. My hesitancy was because I just don't want to put my foot in my mouth and embarrass the faith, embarrass the church, embarrass myself. And so yeah, I'm a little bit nervous about that. Oh no, you're good, man. I promise you, you're you're good to go. I, I think you, what you have to say is something that I've been trying to get Christians to understand. Just with this podcast, you know, we're, we we have a small platform. I understand that, but what we're talking about seems to be resonating with a lot of Christians because they see something wrong in the world, in the church, and with your story and with what you did with this article. I think it's going to help kind of maybe pushing folks over the edge of it kind of has it in about even latching on to what we're talking about, what we're going to talk about today, because you have an incredible story and it's something I want to get into. So why don't you, before we get started, give us a little background of yourself. Well, okay. Somebody had mentioned the podcast and then I heard you say that you would like the the reader sub, or listener submissions. And so I was like, oh man, this is great because I was going through a sermon series, a five-part sermon series about the the things that were upsetting the Pharisees of Jesus' day. And so to figure out how that I got to that point was I grew up on the West Coast and it was as pagan as pagan could be. I mean, my family, extended family was Catholic. And you know, almost everybody left that. And so I grew up outside the church, no church influence at all until I got to high school and they had a basketball league. And so I played basketball with them. And then after, you know, there's just this pull an expectation that you go to school, you play sports, you meet girls, you go to college, you you pick a career field that'll earn money, you graduate, you start working, you work for 40 years. After 15 years, you turn in your first wife, you get your second wife, and you start all over again. (laughs) (laughs) I just didn't like that model. It was, I wasn't a believer at all at the point, but I just did not like that model. I I was like, you know, at the point I I was 24 and I was like, do I really want to work for the next 40 years and then retire and then spend the next 15 years in extreme physical pain and then just die? It really lacked something for me. Now, I didn't have a frame of reference for what would be better. And so as I told some people today, I did the only the dumbest thing you could do at that point. I said, well, I'm going to join the army and just leave home and go kill people and get paid to do it and have fun and it'll be exciting. And so I joined the infantry. And, you know, I was 24 when I joined the infantry. So I'd already had a degree when I got to my first unit. I was the third oldest guy in the platoon because I was 24. And so then it was just 
Well, it was everything I was looking for as a single guy because it was it was like playing football again. I woke up early. We exercised. We wrestled around. We just goofed off. We went out and shot guns and had a good time. And then we woke up the next day and did it again. And it was just doing that over and over. So I did that for quite a few years. And then I was in Alaska and they were getting 9-11 had already happened. I was getting ready to, they had, I was on the line. I was a squad leader and they were, they wanted me to go back to ranger school as an instructor. And I didn't want to go to the rear. The rear is what they call, you know, the training and recruiting and all those, those types of positions. And I wanted to stay on the line so I could deploy. And I was, they wouldn't give me a waiver. I said, I'd even go to the 10th mountain and that's up in New York and nobody wants to go to the 10th mountain. I said, I'd even go be a leg in the 10th mountain. Just keep me on the line. And they said, nope, you've got to go to the rear. And there happened to be a Green Beret recruiter on post. And I just went and I knocked on his door and said, sign me up. I'm not going back to the rear. I'm not training people. Sign me up. for." And so I took a PT test and left, I think, two months later. And then I ended up becoming a Green Beret and spent a couple of years doing that. Got saved, became a Christian during that time period because I was back in the South again. Now, where I grew up in Washington, you could drive miles and not see a church. I come down to the South after I joined the Army, and there's a church on every street corner and in the middle, and often staring at another one right next to it. <laughs> yes. and it just, yeah, it just blew my mind that because I just had not grown up in that cultural context where faith and Christianity had something that big of a pull. And so when I got saved, and I started reading the Bible, and I was like, okay, wait a minute here. I just professed my faith. I just walked down. We were in a big church. I was like, I just walked down in front of about 600 people and committed my life to Jesus. But what I'm going to work every day and doing is the exact opposite of what I'm committed myself to do. And I kept reading the Bible, and I deployed a handful of times. And then we were in Afghanistan, and I was in my last year of that contract. And I was like, okay, I have to either re-enlist or get out. And I have no plans for the future. I didn't know what was going on. And so I made a deal with God. And you shouldn't do that, all you know, but it worked. I, I had to lay a fleece because I didn't have the guts to just get out on my own. And so I made an if-then prayer with God. And I said, God, if you will keep my detachment, my ODA, my special forces team from killing any of these people on this deployment, I will get out and dedicate the rest of my life to you. And now you got to remember, I was a Green Beret. These guys are all over everywhere, and they kill a lot of people. And so that entire deployment, we didn't kill a single person, nobody, not just me. The whole team didn't kill anybody. And so when the chain of command was pressuring me to reenlist, because nobody gets out of you know SF, everybody stays in and does 20 plus unless they get medical retired. They're like, you, you can't get out. Nobody gets out. I said, no, I'm getting out. And so I got out of the army and God has just provided ever since. I managed to go to seminary for free, went into full-time ministry, spent seven years as an intel analyst during all that process, you know, just trying to get better educated and be able to pastor. And, I, you know, I needed that because I didn't grow up in a church environment. I grew up outside of the church. So that that would be, I guess, my down and dirty 30, you know, distant target. That's a, that's an incredible story. I, I told you before we started recording, I've got a buddy that is a Green Beret. Now, I don't, like I told you, I said, I don't know if we're buddies anymore. He's not very happy with me and my take on, on war. And I told you also when we, before we started that I was a card carrier neocon for, man, right after 9-11. It, it happened overnight for me. And so I was all about that, that, that mindset but like you, like what I've learned along the way, and it took me getting out of the being a status and, and, and promoting the state and voting and getting, getting get involved with all that stuff to realize that what we're doing has nothing to do with what Jesus asked us to do. He didn't ask us. He commanded us to love our neighbor. That includes not killing them, I would suppose, right? So <laughs> you would think those two would go together. But like I said, he's not very happy with me. I mean, I love the guy with all my heart, but I told him, I said, man, I can't unlearn what I've learned. If anybody, anybody that knows anything about me knows that if I've, if I've learned something and I, and I know it's the truth, it is what it is for me. That's the path I'm going to follow. 
you can't talk to me about what you're doing overseas and then and try to equate it to what Jesus commanded us to do. It just doesn't fit. I mean, it does. The two don't go together. And when I when I finally woke up and recognized that, I was like, man, I never served in the military, but my mindset and the way I was pushing this was completely off base with what Jesus Christ commanded us to do. Once I understood that, I had to get away from it and, and learn more about peacemaking. People tend to use the, th- the the term peacemaking and think that what we're doing in other countries is peacemaking. That's garbage, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'll, I will even, and I'm not a big one-upper, but here's one of the things that really blew my mind. Because I was, you know, I was as big a statist and a neocon as you, I even gave money to the Republican convention on occasion back in the day. That's how far, that's how far I was down that road. Oh, wow. But one of the things that bothered me about being in the military was the first rule every time we would deploy was you can't share your faith. They didn't, you had to leave it at home. You couldn't, I'm like, that bothered me so much that as a Christian, and I mean, I was a big time, I was a supporter of the state at this point, but they had the gumption to tell me that the one thing I can't do is share Jesus and tell people about Jesus. And they make it very clear every time you deploy, you can't share about Jesus. Really? I did not know that. So is it, um, are they talking about you can't share it with your with the other troops or like with, with the enemy? I mean, foreign nationals. Okay. So you, you can't share your, share your faith with foreign nationals. Okay. I had never heard that before. That's interesting that they, that they make it clear not to do that. Yeah. Oh, it's mentioned constantly that you can't share your faith with the foreign nationals. And so the last time that I had deployed, I took a full box of tapes from our pastor and his preaching and a Walkman back in the day when you had Walkman. <laughs> and I took it with me. And one of our Terps who was really, he, was, he spoke pretty good English. I can't remember what his name is. But as we were leaving, I said, I have some tapes with English on them. And I'd like to give them to you and a Walkman you can play with. And I was like, you don't want anybody else to hear these, though. And so I, I gave him all those tapes. And I have, you know, I left it in God's hands. What what happened when he heard probably 20 tapes of nothing but preaching and praise music. And so my hope is he heard that. And while he was practicing his English, was also hearing the truth. He's probably running around telling everybody about Jesus now. That is awesome. Yeah. All right. So. And I asked you, or you already mentioned it, but I, I'm, I'm always curious to find out how people heard about the Bad Roman, especially the new the listeners that that, that uh, contribute, and, and not not for my own pat on the back, but it's just interesting to me how far reaching the podcast can be because we get messages from people in, in other countries that just and it blows my mind. Like I don't know why I'm amazed at the internet that <laughs> we can we can reach folks that that I will never see face to face, you know, but. You, you told me you think you maybe have heard it on another podcast or on Facebook or something, and you checked it out. Yeah, so I'm not sure exactly. It was probably it was probably less than a month ago, and I heard it. It was either referenced in a podcast or it was on Facebook. And so when I hear somebody reference a podcast, and then anything called the Bad Roman, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> and so I looked it up and I listened. And I and my methodology when I find a new podcast is I go to the first episode and begin listening forward. So some of those can take me a long time. Like what's this, Pete Quinones? Oh, yeah. It took me a year and a half to get caught up to the original material. Oh, wow. You, you're doing better than me because he's got a lot of content out there. <laughs> and he's picked it up in the last like six months. Yeah. I mean, he used to put out just two or three a week. And I was making up ground every week on him. And then he started putting out three, four a week. And I was like, oh, boy. But I had already caught up at that point. And so, so yeah, so I went and I listened to your first podcast and I liked it. And so I listened to the next one. I liked it. And then I, I moved when I have a podcast I like, I move it up to the top of my chain. And so when I go to the, my office every morning after I read scripture, the first thing I do after reading scripture and praying is I listen into my cue on what's up there. And so it didn't take me but about a week and a half. And I had listened to all your episodes. Nice. Yeah, we only release every two weeks. So we're not, we're not going to beat you over the head with it. So you, you got plenty of time to catch up on the bad Roman. Hey folks, Craig here. We're going to do something a little different today. We're going to play an ad, and this is new ground for the bad Roman project that we're super excited about. So here's the ad. Here it goes. Blockchain trading company, purveyors of fine digital assets since 2021. 
Blockchain Trading Company aims to be the leading decentralized autonomous organization in decentralized finance by establishing ourselves in company with one another as purveyors of fine digital assets. Join our primary community in Discord where our ever-growing arsenal of tools are readily available to equip you in the brave new world of all things blockchain. See you in the metaverse. You know, and, and especially on this side of it, when you're talking about Christian voluntarism or anarchism, whatever term you want to use, there's not a lot of content out there. There's a lot of content out there as far as anarchy, but as far as the Christian side of it, there's not a lot. And the more I got into it, the more I started understanding how many Christian anarchists there are out there. Like the whole gun issues, like I, I with this project, I have learned more about pacifism. And I don't know where you are on that, but... I own a I own a weapon, but I, it's not something I would use on people now. When I bought the weapon, that was what my intent was. If somebody breaks into my home, I have no reservations about putting a bullet in their chest. Now it's just not it's not that. But I do like to shoot guns. You know, when I go back and visit my mom and stepdad, he's got some targets set up around on their on their property, and we'll go out there and shoot. It's fun to me. It's like it's like fireworks. You know, it's fun to me doing a target practice, but it's not something that I carry. It's not something I keep in my truck. It's put up in my closet. I've even considered selling it because if if it's there, it's something that you might use in in a, in, a, in a situation. But I I don't carry it with me anymore. I have made a point not to take it with me anywhere I go, and that's not an invitation to anybody coming. And I live right outside of Memphis. That's not that's not an invitation for anybody to come. You know, give me any trouble. I'll give you a hug. <laughs> I'm not going to shoot you, but I'll give you a hug. So I started thinking, because I ended up landing in the pacifism ballpark myself, because I just, you know, when you're supposed to love your neighbor and you look at the guys in the, especially in the New Testament, and you see how they were willing to lay down their life and then forgive the people that were killing them while they were doing it. And so the the, the only challenge to that I have is, I don't know if I'm that strong. And so I don't carry with me every day. Now, I love guns just because they are enjoyable and they're fun to shoot. And, you know, they, they're a great tool. And so after a number of years of struggling with this, I have just said, and I, I decided to stop struggling with it and just call myself a militant pacifist. <laughs> <I'm> not, <laughs> yeah. So I'm not going to kick in your door and shoot you, but I might shoot you if you kick mine in. Yeah. And that's where I'm at. I don't want to. Now, if I was alone and somebody just wanted to, you know, I guess steal something that I had, I don't really have a whole lot that somebody would want to steal. But if they did, you know, I could replace whatever they stole. So I think I might be willing to just let that go. It's a tough subject and it's something that, and, it, and it's a debate. And we're getting way off of what I want to talk about with your article, but I love the conversation. But it's a debate that comes up all of the time with, with uh, Christians. Even even Christian anarchists, and I don't, I understand it. I understand what they're saying. I get it. Now it's that's not loving to my kids or my wife, or I don't, I'm not. I'm single. Don't have any kids. I've got a couple of cats. If somebody comes trying to mess with my cats, we're gonna have a problem. I'm not gonna shoot you, but we're gonna wrestle. You know, somebody. And so I don't know how far pacifism goes as far as violence. Like what I've learned is you can restrain somebody without harming them. Okay. I'm no 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 martial arts expert by any means, but to that extreme as far as pacifism, like uh, Abby, who works on her project, she's a pacifist. I've learned so much from her about pacifism, and she she said, "I'm not going to stand by and watch somebody harm my children." She said, "But we can do things without killing somebody," and I think that's why I land on it. It's like just don't kill anybody if they get a broken arm or something in the process of struggle or whatever. I apologize, but I'm not going to kill you. But I'm going to stop you from trying to harm my family. So I, I get it. And it's a, it's a difficult subject. It's, it's hard to navigate sometimes because it's touchy, man. It's a touchy subject. And it gets really, I don't know if you're part of our discussion group on Facebook, but we got into this last night about this, just this very discussion. And I'm just saying, don't kill people. Let's start there. Let's just start with not killing somebody and then go from there. And it's a difficult, like I said, it's a difficult subject. It is. And I, I don't know how far, if you want to have another conversation on this, because, you know, because it is, it's a, it's a challenge because all, we're all created in the image of Christ. And so we're all image bearers. And so we don't have the right to take somebody else's life, but then we're also human. And God gave it, you know, in the old Testament, there were cities where somebody had to go. If they accidentally killed somebody, they could go hide out because sometimes people die. And so. 
Yeah, there's there's gray area in there. That's why I just I settled after I, I wrestled with this for years. And I finally just said I'm a militant pacifist. <laughs> I don't I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna cause trouble, but I might end it if somebody you know, it's not like I can't shoot. I'm a very good shot. I just don't want to have to do it. But you know, if you walk into our house, I think it's just because I don't think I have any PTSD or anything like that. But guess what? I have bats in the corner. You know, I just lived in an environment where that was just normal and I haven't fully broken away from that. Now, do I have any intentions of clubbing somebody? No, I don't want to, but I am prepared. I get it. No, no, like I said, it's a it's a subject that's hard to navigate and I like and we we talked about the early church. When you go and, and read some of the stuff, how serious they were about pacifism to the point of just dying instead of harming somebody else. I mean, that's how serious they took it. Passivism is something that I think just kind of comes over over time the more you learn about it. Now, getting away from the state, I think we can do that pretty quick if we understand the teachings of, of Christ. Love your neighbor. It's not loving your neighbor to put somebody in charge of them, you know, and especially no liars, thieves, and mass murderers. If, if we're going to be honest about the state, especially the United States government, they, they're mass murderers, you know, and that, I mean, there's, 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 no, there's no way around that, but people don't see it that way. No, that's why I don't understand people that, you know, they want to do the right thing. You know, they're willing to vote, you know, for the quote unquote lesser of two evils, but their neighbor thinks the other guy is the lesser of two evils and their other neighbors thinks the other person and and they're all right because they're all evil. (laughs) And so I stopped voting. Let's see here. I've, I voted in the 2008 Ron Paul primary and that, and I haven't voted since I voted religiously before that. You, you beat me to it. So I didn't stop voting until 2016. That was the last time I cast a ballot. And that, at that point, I'd been studying the United States Constitution, and I just went extreme third party and went to the Constitution Party. I wasn't voting for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I mean, I certainly wasn't voting for Hillary, Hillary Clinton, you know, from my background. But Donald Trump, man, the stuff that was coming out of his mouth, I was like, I can't vote for this guy. I mean, this guy's... I don't know. We're getting way off subject because I talk about this stuff on the show, but let's get into your article a little bit. So Jesus is the epitome of everything a bad Roman wants to be. And in this article you have, it's called the five controversies. You said the apostle Mark describes Jesus's time in Capernaum by shining a light on five controversies. Jesus evoked. And you start with Mark two, uh, Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. And why don't we, let's just start there. Let's, we'll go through the, all these and then we'll get into uh, the about the author stuff. But so Jesus forgives a paralyzed man's sins. And then to pr- prove he had the authority and power to forgive sin, he heals the paralyzed man and tells him to get up, grab his bed and go home. The scribes who witnessed Jesus' actions thought to themselves, only God can forgive sins. And they were right, but they were unaware and ignorant of who Jesus was. Why don't you expound on that a little bit? So they were looking for a Messiah, but they wanted a king, a priest, you know, this form, this man who would mobilize and marshal what was left of the remnant in Israel and Palestine and throw the Romans out and then conquer all the surrounding forces and reform old Israel. You know, that's what they had in mind. And so when the Messiah shows up and he is nothing like what they are looking for, they totally miss him because they, you know, they're looking for a majesty and a, a big white horse and a crown and a sword. And he shows up wearing flip flops and a robe and saying, love your neighbor. And they just rejected him. And right here, these five controversies with the start of them, you know, they're watching Jesus like a hawk and they're seeing what he's doing. And, and he, and he knows they are. So he starts out with the, what we would consider the, you know, the easiest thing. He just says, your sins are forgiven. Now, we all forgive people of their sins all the time, but in this instance, this is God forgiving a sin. So it's a significantly greater forgiveness than you or I forgiving somebody who wrongs us. Here, it's God forgiving a sin, and they recognize that. They just don't recognize it's Jesus that is God. So they say, oh, you know, they get upset, and they're like, only God can forgive sins. And that's why I put in the in the article, you know, they were right. Only God can forgive sins like that can fully remit sins and atone for them. And so he says, well, just to prove to you what I that I can do this, get up and walk. 
and the guy stands up and he walks out of there and you know their minds are blown and at that moment right there they all they they fully realize that there's uh, something has clashed with their worldview and it's going to be a problem for their worldview because if Jesus is God if he is who he says he is well then he's nothing who they've said he is and who they want and he is going to remove all their authority remove all their power and he's going to take it all himself and he deserves it it warrants it. So yeah, it's it's an earth shattering. The, the beauty of this is, you know, I've read Mark a whole bunch of times over the years, but when I fully became more of a, the libertarian and the anarchist way of seeing things, the Bible truly opens up. And you know, I could read it before, but when I was studying Mark to pre, you know, because I'm preaching out of this, and so when I was reading it, now that I realized that my, my the enemy of Jesus uses the government as it, it is fully in charge of it and in control of it well it really opens up these passages to see so much more clear what's going on so that that's that's the first controversy yeah and i think it, it's i we talked about this before we started recording too i think if jesus was walking around on earth today christians today would murder him no doubt about it i mean i just because he's the message he preaches is completely opposite of what they, they hear the state preaching. Well, I will qualify that. American Christians would line up and buy tickets and just as they did 2,000 years ago would yell crucify him. With smiles on their face, they'd buy pay-per-view for it and they would feel justified at the same time. Yeah. I have no doubt about it. It's sad. And I would have. 10 years ago. Yeah. I I don't want to say that I would have because I don't, I don't know. I've, I've always had an understanding. You, you mentioned with the, the, the anarchist side of it and, and be able to read scripture differently as an anarchist, even as a neocon, man, I had this love for Christ, but I wasn't putting two and two together. I wasn't, it was, there was something in my brain that was blocking out the teachings of Christ. He says, love your neighbor. He says, love one another all the time. He says it all the time. It just never clicked in my head. Love one another. But if he's out there preaching that right now, come on, look at what's going on in this world right now. How, how much do we love each other? We don't love each other. We don't we, we're claim to be, but come on, let's be real. This is why baptisms are down. This is why churches are empty and closing, because we have lost our first love. Yeah. We have replaced that first love and understanding and recognition of just who the Lord and Messiah is with an, what we would consider an equal, even in if not even more powerful partner in the state. Yeah. And it, it's in churches are number one for it. And it, it breaks my heart because I see it and there's really almost nothing I can do about it because, you know, as you said, I'm a pastor and I am like a unicorn there. I don't find any others like me out there. And it's just, it's not easy to know that when I go to meetings and things like that, I'm the only one in the room who isn't happy to have, you know, troops deployed and go into combat. And I'm the only one. Yeah. All right. The second controversy, Mark 2, verses 13 through 17. Jesus upsets the religious leadership again by associating with sinners. The scribes and the Pharisees question Jesus bona fides because no righteous man would associate with sinners for him, for he himself would become soiled. And this is important because it's something I see so much with Christians today. And I, and I told you this earlier to me, the, the, the majority of Christians today are the modern-day Pharisees. Jesus hung out with, with sinners. He hung out with them. He wanted to talk to them. But you have so many Christians right now. I was talking to a guy at work the other day, and I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> I don't think he does. I don't think he's familiar with it, but he keeps inviting me to church. And I want to go visit. It's a Baptist church. Now, I spend a lot of time in Southern Baptist churches, and so I'm very hesitant to go to a Baptist church because— the worship of the state that happens in these churches. Now, and I asked him, I said, is it a Southern Baptist church? And I'm just asking questions. He goes, oh, no. He said, we're a Baptist church, but the Southern Baptists have lost their minds because they are trying to bring in gay people to the church. And I just kind of stared a hole through, through, through him because I knew where he was going with this. I've heard this before. He goes, we're supposed to warn them before they go off the cliff. But he kept emphasizing gay people. And I'm like, and I used to be that guy. So I'm coming from this understanding how it was, and but I know what he's saying. And I'm thinking, but Jesus hung out with gay people. Jesus hung out with prostitutes. Jesus hung out with drunks. I mean, you can't, who are you? Who are you 
Jesus told us to love them. Let Jesus sort that stuff out. That's between them. And, and so and when he said that to me, I, I feel like if I go to this church, I'm going to sit there and judge everybody now. And that's not why I want to go to church. You know, I want to go there and I want to hear the word of God preached without hate. There's a lot of hate in Christians, especially with that stuff. Like, And, I, and it's, it's just what it sounded like to me it was just total hate of these people. And I was like, man, listen, man, it's none of my business what they do. That's why I come down on, the, on this issue. What they do is none of my business. God, Jesus instructed me to love them. That's what I'm trying to do. And I can't love them by by judging them. That's it's impossible. I'll put a caveat on that because I am a Southern Baptist pastor. I don't know if you do that or not, but I am Southern Baptist. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't. I knew you were a Baptist preacher, but I didn't know it was a Southern Baptist. But I am a unicorn in the in the in the convention just because I am not a you know I'm not big statist. Well, I wanted to I wanted to say something to that because you call yourself a unicorn. Now I've talked to several pastors on the show. You're not the only one out there, I promise you. I hope not. There's other ones like you that are trying to get this message out as well. But just just know that you're not alone. There's other there's other there's other pastors out there that understand what we're talking about, and they're trying to bring the church back to where we're supposed to be. Anyway, go ahead. Well, no, I mean that just brings up you know I'm thinking of you know, the the prophet Elijah when he thought he was the only one, and and the Lord's like, no, no, <laughs> I've reserved a whole bunch. You're not by yourself, and so I, I'm in that same boat. And I'm happy that there are. I just don't run into them. But as far as what you were saying about the associating with sinners, yeah, you're spot on. Jesus, the church, what he was teaching them, because and I was thinking about this this week. If you read, if you flip past the Gospels and start reading the rest of the epistles, the almost the entire membership of the early church outside of the the Jewish converts started out as homosexuals because they were Greco-Romans and those guys were very rampantly homosexual in their culture. And so they started out as homosexuals in the church and then they left that behavior and became Christians. And that's why Paul is constantly writing to them and going, hey, listen, don't forget, you can't be having those, you know, these illicit affairs, these illicit relationships. But if the church didn't allow homosexuals in the door, it would have stopped 2000 years ago. I mean, it just, that's just the way it is. And so I, and as far as his view on, I, I mean, I can't speak for all Southern Baptist churches. I can only speak for mine and the ones I've been in. And I would say for the most part, my, what I have experienced in the church when it comes to that topic is wide open arms. Now, the churches would not conduct a homosexual wedding. You know, we, we wouldn't conduct a wedding. But we would absolutely welcome and embrace anybody coming in of any lifestyle, because if they're not there and hearing the word, how else are they going to hear it? And it's up to God to convict them. And, you know, I look at myself, I told the church this morning, I started out as a knucklehead. And right now I'm still a knuckleball. <laughs> it just it's a process. And so how could I look at somebody else and their particular sin and judge it as more not worth talking to and kicking and not wanting to fellowship with them over any other sin. I mean, I, am I going to not let, will I stop at bank robbers? I'll let bank robbers in, but yeah. homosexuals, you got to stay at the door. And that's why that second one was a controversy because the Pharisees are looking at them and they're like, what are you doing associating with sinners? We keep those types away. That's why they were the way they were. Their authority and power was from division. And they minimized the faith. There was very little faith involved in it, but there was a lot of division. And I'm elevated versus you, and you can't get to me. You want to be like me, but you can't. And Jesus goes right in there. He reclines with them, passes food around with them. You know, he's right there with them. Do you think they heard what he had to say? You know they did. You know they did, because he was willing to be right there with them. And so, yeah, that that's a controversy, again, that is still present in the church today over many other things. It's, it's very disappointing, disheartening, too. You know, like I said, I, I used to have that mindset, too. And when I, when I come on just that particular subject, and people have asked me about it, you know, people that have messaged me and stuff. And when I come down, this is where I fall on it. It's none of my business. I have enough going on in my life that I need to work on myself to sit and worry about what somebody else is doing. That's between them and God, okay? I'm not going to sit here and beat the beat them over the head with the Bible. That's, I'm not doing it. I will, I will love you. And like, the, like with theology and stuff, it goes over my head. I don't get into it. I just try to keep it basic. Love your neighbor. 
as you love yourself. Love God as you love yourself. It's, it's so I just keep that simple. I like it simple. <laughs> it makes it easy for me. And I think if Christians just got back to being simple, we could get away from some of this garbage. You know, one other example regarding that is the adulterous woman. You know, these Pharisees throw this woman at Jesus' feet and they're like, what are you going to do about that? Because they know that what he should say is take her out in the wood line and stone her and kill her because she's adulterous. And so after a few minutes and, I, you know, without rehashing the whole story, he says, okay, how about the first one of you without sin? You throw the first rock. Yes. And they can't do it. And so then they all leave and she's looking at him and he, and she, you know, she's because she knows that she was on the carpet and she was about to get killed. And he says a very big thing right there. He says, go and sin no more. It's not that she didn't sin. He knew she had sinned. She was guilty as charged. But he said, go and you're, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. And that's what he does. He wipes the slate clean, no matter what it is. And then just says, hey, don't do that again. Yeah. Even though he knows that we'll often slip up and people will, but he just wipes that slate clean and says, go, go, you know, do the right thing. Try again tomorrow. Uh, the Cast the first stone. That's such a big statement by Jesus. And when you say that to Christians, they kind of they look at you out of the side of their eye like, man, this guy's a lunatic. But no, he said it. If you're, are you sinless? Do you not mess up every day? Did he not forgive you? What makes your sin any less than hers or his? I mean, you're not 13 years old. You know people that have tried to act one way and said one thing. Meanwhile, they had a girlfriend on the side or they had a gambling problem or maybe they were hooked on some you know, drug. They were doing something. You've known people that pretend one way, yet it's not reality. And so we don't know that. None of us know that. And so, yeah, you, you just have to love people and then pray and hope that, you know, as they grow in their faith, whatever those things are in their closet, they'll take them out and throw them away. It's seriously between them and God. It's none of my business. You know, we're, let's hang out with them. Let's hang out. Let's have a conversation. Absolutely. I'm not going to beat you over the head. Hey, folks, Craig here again. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, the first 15 folks to sign up for four ad spots with us will get a fifth spot for free. You can also support our mission by donating on our site. I'm so happy how this project has grown, and thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the conversation. All right, the third controversy, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. This time they recruit the disciples of John to join the Pharisees to show how the righteous and faithful of God fast twice weekly, while Jesus and his disciples do not fast at all. The point they aimed to make was that Jesus does not follow Orthodox faith practices, and therefore he should not be followed at all. In the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus is a bad Jew who will lead others down a path to destruction. Let's talk about that. All right. Well, that one's a that one's one of the longer ones because the examples that he uses to make his point, and so he, you know, they're, they're talking about fasting, so they're talking, you know, going through the motions. They're all about going through the motions and because those things are visible. You know, what, what is two of the things that are most visible in their faith? Fasting and Sabbath. And if, so if you can make it look like you do those two things, then you are righteous because everybody can go, oh yeah, I know that dude's fasting. I see him fasting and he makes sure I know he's fasting. You know, that was a big part of it is he makes sure I know he's fasting. And then, oh, I also know that that guy, you know, and we're going to talk about the Sabbath here in a minute. So I don't want to get into the Sabbath, but, you know, Jesus says, well, there's a whole lot more. So he describes, you know, that the, he's a, at this wedding and that eventually, the, the, this is what I really, I've realized this year reading this, that the fast he was talking about was so much at a higher and spiritual level than what they're, they're talking about, deplete, you know, depleting the body for a moment to try and, you know, to just withhold and, and to have a little bit of a potential communion with God through that withholding of whatever it happens to be. And he's like, they're going to fast because I'm leaving. And of course, the, the Pharisees didn't know and his disciples had no idea what he was talking about. But could you imagine had you been sitting there around the table with him every day for three years, and then all of a sudden he's gone. Then he shows back up again a few days later, and then he's gone again for the last 2,000 years. So I mean, we're fasting right now. It's just a significant teaching where the Pharisees are getting wrapped around the axles on the appearance of being faithful and totally missing God's point. And, you know, I can't say that we don't do the same thing today. 
that's a great point. I've never heard it put that way, that we are fasting right now. I've, I've never heard anybody explain that to me. I love that. That's a, that's a great explanation. All right, so the last two controversies kind of tie in together. The fourth and fifth controversy, Mark chapter 2, 23 through 28, and Mark chapter 3, 1 through 6. And in the fourth one, you said, to truly drive the point home, Mark describes how Jesus upset the Pharisees by not following their hypocritical understanding of the Sabbath. The Pharisees attempted to show Jesus as an unworthy leader because his followers were violating their rules on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded by showing the Sabbath is for man, not the other way around. Basic human needs must still be met on the Sabbath. However, the Pharisees were using the Sabbath as a hammer against their fellow man when God gave it as a blessing. All right, let's tie these, these last two together because I think you said in the, in the fifth controversy that it kind of plays off each other. So let's talk about both those at the same time. All right, well, so on the fourth one, for, you know, they had taken the God-given instruction and elevated it above God. And so, you know, it's again, it's not a, any different than taking any kind of tradition we have and elevating it at a higher status than it is when really God's intent behind it is, you know, I gave this to you as a gift. I want you to relax, rest. The things you think are, are important just aren't that important. What's important is this vertical relationship with me. That's important. And so if you'll focus on that, a lot of those horizontal relationships with other people will take care of each other. And then the fifth point, this is where he nails it. And he just puts them right in their place because they are very upset with him. And he has asked them, is it okay to do, you know, is it all right to do good or evil or good or bad on the Sabbath? And they're just, you know, they're silent. And he says, well, is it okay to do good or bad? Is it or to take a life or to kill? And they're silent. And the, the man with the wizard hand, he heals him, knowing full well that they're already plotting. And so they're already committing evil because they're already plotting against him while he's doing this. And so they're not only violating the Sabbath with their thoughts and their minds because they're making plots and, and scheming to, to kill him. So they have violated the Sabbath themselves and they're doing it in a manner that is just, you know, over the top. And so he says, you know, doing good, it's always the right time to do good. There's never a day that you stop doing good. You don't take a Sabbath from doing good. And so, but in their minds, they just couldn't get that wrapped around them. And, and I learned a lot reading that this year because I was like, do we ever, how often do we take Sabbaths from doing good? It's like, well, you know, I've done some good this week. I'm going to relax today. <laughs> Don't we? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we do. It's like, well, I did the right thing earlier. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go get some me time right now. I'm gonna go plug into my man cave or I'm gonna go do whatever it is. But but really he's saying, you know, it's always time to do right and never time to do wrong. Right. That's beautiful. And I think that's that's so true. And just the fact that he was doing this, knowing what they were fixing to do to him, you know, I, that's the story of Jesus never ceases to amaze me. The, the, the way he lived his life is how we're supposed to strive for it. Now, he was perfect. We can't, we're, we're imperfect humans. I, I get it. But just trying to strive for it, I think, make, would make this world a better place. I mean, there's not a doubt in my mind. Just love each other. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, I, I, when I look at the, the state of the faith right now, and I see that baptisms are down and churches are empty and many are closing, Why? It's because we have elevated the state as a household God and relegated Jesus to Sundays and maybe Wednesday if we're lucky. Right. And when, when, you, when he's just somebody on the back burner, then it, you know people can see right through it. And we've become hypocrites. We've become the hypocrite. And, and who wants to believe in somebody that you don't believe in? Yeah. <laughs> there, there you have it. There you go. So in the, the, the last line of, of your article, and this is going to play into what I want to talk about next, and, and we give people the opportunity to give us, tell us a little bit about themselves, like the about the author section of the articles that some people do and some folks don't, which it doesn't matter either way. But I, I really appreciate what you, the information you gave us about yourself. But in the, in the last line, it said, it is time to be good Christians. If we will be faithful to the kingdom of God, it will seldom equate to being a faithful patriot to a temporal nation state. All right. And you mentioned in, in when you were giving some background that you were a Green Beret. And when we were emailing back and forth, when you said that you talked to kids about not joining the military, and that's that's so important. How do you go about that? Because in the about the author, you said 
God spared me and showed me the great mercy in opening my eyes to love and against war and the state to see the great work God did in me. Previously, I spent more than seven years as an intelligence analyst for the Defense Intelligence Agency. And then you became, did you, were you part of that before you became a Green Beret or? Yeah, it was afterwards. Okay. So just talk to me a little bit about that because this is an important subject that, like I told you, uh, we have veterans that listen to this that are kind of on the fence about stuff. And, and as I mentioned, my buddy, you know, he's upset with me and he's a green beret. And the, this, this is such an important subject for me personally, just because of my friendship. So I want you to just kind of talk about it. Maybe if, if at some point he's willing to listen to me, I can share this with him and you'll just, just talk about that. Well, you're putting a lot of weight on me with that. One. <laughs> <laughs> well, whatever you're comfortable talking about, let's just go with that. So th- this is something I struggled with myself. I mean, I was I loved the army. Uh, you know, of course, back then I was a strict constitutionalist myself. I, I I had just I was like, well, this could work if we would only do it. It's that whole socialism. Well, socialism would work if we'd only do. It. Well, I thought at the time, you know, boy, we would be a great constitutional republic if we would only get back to it. And, uh, and uh, you know, I was just fooling myself. But as far as being in the Army, the, one of the hardest challenges that I had as a Christian was realizing the impact that Constantine is still having on the church today. We, st- th- we have a national church where our churches are lifting up and supporting everything that the United States does. They, they, you know, how many Christians are willing to say that just about every single thing the United States government does is evil and or a failure? And they won't say it. They won't do it because, you know, they support the troops and I support the troops. Half of my friends, actually, now that I've been out as long as I have, most of them are retired now. I still have a few that are in and they all think I've gone off the deep end. They can't believe it because they knew me back then. And so there is a real contrast, and it's if you look at those five controversies with Jesus, it's the same exact controversy. Where do you put the state, and where do you put, I mean, the Iraq War? Do you think Jesus would truly support the Iraq War? Of course not. It's, it's utter insanity. But if you look in, who are the biggest supporters of it? The Christians. The Christians are. And I'll throw myself as a Baptist under the under the bus. The probably the hardest core supporters, Southern Baptists. You know, if you look at who sends the most kids into the military, Southern Baptist churches in the South. They love sending their sons and daughters off to go. And since I've been doing this the last seven plus years, I can't figure it out because I'm like, what have we taught these people? What are we saying from the pulpit? What are we saying in Sunday school? What, how are we praying where we think the best thing and the most admirable thing our children can do is to go fight for a government in, uh, overseas somewhere against people that never did a single thing to any of us and have no intentions of doing anything to any of us. And the one thing I told somebody this about two years ago, you know what I want all those arm, our Air Force planes doing? Instead of dropping bombs, start dropping Bibles. And that's it. Just drop Bibles. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to kids, so when I, I've been doing this now where I have, and I've only failed with one. Now, of course, I haven't talked a, a ton, but I have the benefit of having been in. And so if they, especially if they have been in the church, I just talk to them about, okay, what does the, what does Jesus want for you? What does he want your life to look like? And how, what are your expected means of, you know, how are you supposed to behave? And then I give them the, you know, because I've been in, I know exactly how the people in the military act and behave of my friends that were in. And I, you know, I loved it when I was in, but there's not a whole lot of non-divorced members in the military. Now those divorces, some of them happen just because I'm drinking an infidelity. So as a Christian, do I want to tell a kid to go in there and get married? And, you know, fulfill that part of his life. And then either he's cheating on her or she's cheating on him. It's, it, but that's what's coming down the pike because I just know that that's what's coming for most of them. There's almost nobody escapes the 20 years in the army without getting divorced because of alcohol and infidelity. And so that's one area. And then when I, I talk to him about, you know, killing, 
What makes you think that you have the right and the expectation to go overseas and kill somebody in their country just because a government told you to? What have they been right about before? Nothing. They've never been right about anything. And so when I look at it as a Christian, you know, as a son, I used to tell my son, now he's 26 now, that if he was going to join the military, I would go to jail because I would beat him just to keep him, you know, I would hurt him so that he wouldn't be able to go. I'd break his leg, do something. You know, I'm just talking out of my ear here, but I wanted him to know how much I didn't want him to go into the military because I had better, you know, better plans for him, just like God has better plans for us. That's like the lowest hanging piece of fruit and it's rotten to the core, but we love to pick it. Yeah. Are you familiar with Scott Horton at all? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Met him one time. Big fan. Nice. Uh, he's probably one of, one of my favorite uh, shows is his. And I had him on. I, you've, you've heard, I'm sure. But he had a, a guy on. He's had this guy on before. But I guess he, he, he served in Iraq. And he worked for the State Department, I think, for, in, for under Obama. And he was stationed in Afghanistan. And he told a story. And this it was so striking to me what he said. These villagers in Afghanistan would come across these American soldiers they thought they were Russian still. They, they had never heard of 9-11. They'd never heard of New York. We're, we're on their land, destroying their, their land, and they don't know why. And when I, I heard that, I was like, I wonder how many Christians understand that, that are supporting this war, that these folks don't even know anything about you. What happened on 9-11? They don't, they don't know anything about what's going on, but we're over there destroying their land. And when it when he said that it was just so striking. Like these folks don't even know who you are. They don't know, understand why you're upset with them. <laughs> I had a similar experience. So, you know, I was fully on board with going to Afghanistan and all that. And so I'm in Afghanistan. And at the time, you know, I'm really on the fence about my faith and what I'm doing. And when I began interacting with the Afghans and seeing, man, they have nothing. And they're happy that way. You know, I'm sure they'd like to have stuff. But they, many of the guys that we would see, you know, they spend hours just squatting in front of their hovel and they just sit there all day. And I, I mean, I don't really know what they do. And then they go and they eat something. They have no idea anything that's going on. And I used to look at these guys as we're rolling around with, I was signed for a million, I was the senior engineer on my ODA. I signed for a million dollars worth of equipment over there. And we're rolling around in a million dollars worth of equipment with guns pointed out of every orifice on our GMVs you could get. And I'm looking at these dudes in flip-flops and dirty robes. And I'm like, really? I've got more on me right now than he'll ever have in his entire life. And what am I doing here again? And it really blew my mind to think, why did the U.S. government send me over here to do things to people that have no ability to do it? They, they don't even know. I mean, they wouldn't know how to get on an airplane. I mean, they just have no concept of it. It's so far. I mean, they're so far. Their culture is so different than ours that, yeah, they have no concept of it. Now, are there a handful of people over there that can try and rile up the troops and, for, and coerce them to do things? See, that's the key, though. It's coercion. The thing that our government won't tell you is most of those suicide bombers, they're duct taped to their, you know, they're duct taped to the steering wheel and their family is being held at gunpoint if they don't go do it. These are not people that are over there trying to drive a, a suicide vehicle into a convoy of Americans because they hate Americans. They're doing it because they have, they have nothing else. Their family's been kidnapped or we just bombed them and killed them at some other point, and they're trying to get revenge. It's an eye for an eye, and they're trying to get revenge, just like any one of us would do if, you know, I got one sister. And I won't think I would now, but at one point, had let's say I was 20 and my sister is a couple years older than me, and somebody violated her in the most vile way, would I think about doing something to that person? Of course I would. And they're, the, they're human. They're people just like we are. And I, there's no way I can get around thinking of, the billions of dollars, actually, I think Scott Horton just said something. It was like one and a half trillion dollars or two and a half that has been spent in Afghanistan in the last 20 years on a country that is filled with rocks. And so here's one thing. I, I don't talk about this very often, but I used to think, oh, this has got to be the most godforsaken place in the entire world. 
When I was in Afghanistan, I found it to be one of the most godly places. I was so in tune with God because the scenery was beautiful. And all the stuff that I have here in the States, I didn't have it there. So I didn't have all those interruptions that were blocking my ability to talk in that vertical relationship with God. And man, I saw God everywhere. And I was just like, what are we doing to these people? Will they ever hear the gospel from a an evangelist at this point, because we have done, we have done so much bad and evil in there. And so it's at that point when you start, you know, when you start closing that circle, you start realizing, well, maybe there's a plan to this, to keep all these people from hearing the gospel, because we have turned to them so sour against anybody that would bring it and deliver it to them. And it's really frightening. And I, I am just appalled that I was a part of it for as long as I was. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's super depressing when you when you set, just think about it. Hey folks, Craig here, and I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in depth about your article. So if you like what we're doing at The Bad Roman and would like to try your hand at writing, then send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. Man, this has been a great conversation. This has been a great conversation. I know that it's going to resonate with a lot of folks too, because like what we've done with this project is try to get these types of messages out and conversations. I really appreciate you being so open with us and, and telling us your story. And I really, really appreciate you contributing to the blog as well. That's huge to me because, you know, you don't have to, you did it voluntarily, but you, you've got a story to tell. And I love that, that you were willing to do it. And in the, about the author section, you, you've got a YouTube channel, you, you've uh, published three books as well. You want to speak to about that and I'll let you get out of here and get back to your family, but just tell us a little bit about your books and your, your YouTube channel where we can find you at. All right. Well, the YouTube channel is the church's YouTube channel. I just put my message up every week. So I usually do it on Monday morning. I'll take the Sunday sermon and then edit it so it's just the message and cut out all the music and I just put that up on the on YouTube and so it's definitely there I just I just had a brain fart and forgot that what the name of it even is I felt preaching the preaching the Bible with Pastor Ian and so it's pretty easy and I've actually published my fourth book two weeks ago since we started talking oh nice I'll, I'll just give you a little brief so the first book was because my wife and I we had tried to adopt a girl out of the foster care system and Boy, if you want to do some stories that'll break some people's hearts and get people riled up, have on some people that have experienced have or have knowledge of the foster care system. Well, it's interesting you said that because I've had somebody reach out to us and want us to talk about that, the foster system in America and and how because he, he listened to the show and he's, he has foster children as well. And he wanted us to do a show, but I didn't know who to contact. I contacted somebody that. It was a suggestion, but she wanted us to pay her to come on the show, and that's just not something I'm going to do. But maybe I can get you back on. We can talk about that a little bit because that would be something that's going to resonate with some folks too. Because like I said, we they asked us to do an episode. I just don't know who to talk to about it. Well, so the, the real guy in our that would be in our liberty circles would be Carlos Morales. And so he's written a book on it. He was a, a DHS agent in Texas, and I want to say he did it for six months, and he was so disgusted with what he was doing that he quit and has now been on like a crusade for the last decade against it. I didn't discover him until after we had already had a girl that we had fostered for a year and a half from birth, a year and a half, and then they took her and gave her to an aunt. And so I, I just wrote a fictionalized story to her that I hope at some point when she's an adult, she'll be like, who were my foster parents? You mean I had foster parents? And then she'll read that book and be intrigued by you know, my wife and I, and, and she'll reach out. That's my hope. And my second book, Revoked Consent, I mean, it, it's a story about how, why government hates gun control or loves gun control because it would really be so easy. And so the story is a bit violent because if people ever decided to actually take back the authority and power from government, they could do it in one day. The ability of a weapon to reach out and touch somebody from a distance and the fact that we know where everybody lives is 
it's impossible for politicians, judges, any of them to actually hide. But people are decent humans, so they don't do it. And they trust and they know that most people are decent and they won't do it. But that's why they don't want people to have guns. And so in that book, I actually have a handful of people say, you know what, I've had enough. And they start popping politicians and judges. And then it, it takes no time whatsoever before all of the thing we turn into a, the world turns into a libertarian paradise. And so that's that story. And then I wrote Genetic God. It's more of a Christian-themed story of how God is available and, and we can see him. And science has just now caught up to us and is able to actually see the evidence through epigenetics and things like that. And so those are the three fiction books I wrote. And then I wrote one book on evangelism and you know just how to reach people. I plan on writing a bunch more. I, I really appreciate you having me on here. And I hope to write some more material for you. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I, I loved reading your article and I'd love to love to read some more stuff from you. You've got a, a great perspective on things and you, you have a perspective on, on stuff that not a lot of people do. I mean, let's just be real. I mean, a lot of people serve in the military, but a lot of people are not seeing things the way you see it now. And I, and, and I love the fact that you've been so open about it. That's, that means a lot to me. Well, man, I really appreciate this. Like I said, I, I want to do it again. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've, I love talking to everybody I have on the show, and I love meeting new people this way. But um, well, let's do this again for sure. That sounds good to me. If you want to write another piece for thebadroman.com, I'll have you back on. We'll, we'll just sit here and holler at each other. <laughs> All right, buddy. I'm going to let you go and let you get back to your family. All right. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. <laughs>